0: Well, with that sermon introduction, thanks for being here, everybody. My name is Bill, Bill Farrell, not the regular campus and teaching pastor, so if you're visiting with us or you're watching online, uh, your regular pastor, Brandon Owen, is off today, but I work with Brandon every week and the rest of the team here at Harpeth as the sort of uh, executive pastor over the north. You know that Harpeth is one of four campuses uh, associated with Brentwood Baptist that are in Nashville, and I work with all of them, so Brandon said, hey, Bill, would you want to cover one of the weeks in the God Is series. I said, sure, happy to do that. And he even let me pick the one I wanted, and I wanted this one. So good to be here today. Uh, Most of you have probably heard this quote uh, from A.W. Tozer. It says that what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that's what this series has kind of revolved around, the God Is series, thinking about what comes to mind when we think of God. I remember back when I was in seminary, We had a class which required us to write a one-page definition of God, which first I thought was going to be pretty easy until I started thinking, what would I say? What do I say about the almighty creator of the universe? What can I say about God? I looked like crazy to try to find that paper. I would have loved to have seen what I wrote, but alas, I couldn't find it. But I know this. As we've looked at these different characteristics in the last few weeks, I think those attributes are what I probably wrote about. God is good. God is loving, God is trustworthy, God is our Redeemer, and today we're going to be talking about how God is self-sacrificing, how God is sacrificial. We're going to be looking in Philippians 2. We're not going to turn there right this minute. Well, you can turn there if you want. We're not going to read it just yet, but... Philippians is a book about joy. You know, I think when people write about Philippians, when they think about it, sometimes people summarize it as just be joyful, the overall message of Philippians. And so today we're going to be looking in chapter 2 at a passage that is pretty interesting. You'll notice when you turn there that it's written a little different than the other sections of Philippians 2. You know, it's not just a paragraph. It's almost written like a poem or a song. Some people think that when Paul wrote this, that perhaps it was used as a creed, if you will, in the churches, like the Apostles' Creed or there's the Nicene Creed. There's other creeds. You've uh, probably heard of some of them. Or maybe a song. Uh, that It's amazing how much better we can remember uh, words to songs than sometimes to other things, to famous speeches or to uh, anything we read. Maybe we're trying to memorize the scripture. If you put it to a song, boy, it's a lot easier. And I found out something this past week that uh, Oksana never told me, although I'm sure she knows this, that when we do songs here, uh, the worship ministers meet about every other week. They talk about various things related to all of our campuses, but we sing songs that are in three specific uh, buckets, if you will. The glory of God, the gravity of sin, or the grandeur of God's grace. We sing them in one of those three things. I thought, how nice that we've actually put thought into We're not just picking songs, you know, out of a, a haphazard uh, pool and, and throwing them out. We're trying to sing things that we think are specific to what? What we believe about God, what we believe about sin, what we believe about God's grace. Just think that's beautiful. And the context today is going to be, in Philippians 2, about unity. So I want you to remember that as we read through the passage because a lot of times we read things and we don't put them in the proper context. And I think that Paul is trying to tell us something about how unity should be played out in our churches. I think after we've been in church uh, a long time, sometimes unity takes more of a back burner uh, setting, if you will. We either find something we don't like or uh, we just think less about unity. I went down to get a cup of coffee this morning downstairs, and I went, when I get, went to get that coffee, noticed it was hot. I was happy. I noticed there was sweetener. I was happy. I couldn't find the creamer. I was like, there's no creamer down here. I couldn't believe there would be no creamer. So I started to get upset and have disunity. And then I saw it. Oh, there it was. It was in a nice picture. It was half and half. It's even better than creamer. It was great. So all at once, I, I went back from this kind of upset state to the, the, the friendly state, right? But we shouldn't let those little things get in our way, right? We need to be about unity. And what we're going to read about today is in that context. Back in uh, 2009, My wife and I and my daughter Kim, who's sung here before, some of you know her, we were boarding a series of planes, planes, some trains, some buses, I believe. We were going to Africa. We were going to go to Uganda with World Vision to do some relief work over there. And so we boarded that first flight, I remember, out of Dallas. And as we were flying, uh, there was a little bit of a commotion on the plane, that first flight. There was a, a child who was upset about something. I noticed my daughter, who was nine, took out a little notebook out of her backpack and just started kind of kind of drawing. She was drawing and kind of entertaining herself, which was just wonderful. Didn't have to worry about that and and through this trip, uh, I noticed there were a number of times where she would pull out that notebook and she would draw little pictures, you know, little uh, ideas she had about things going on there. Finally later on, I asked her, "Hey, what do you what do you draw in that notebook? Let me see some of the stuff you have drawn." And she started to turn the pages. It was a a scene of a child screaming with, you know, funny explosions around it, various things like that, you know, from these different trips, you know. And even to this day, you know how things in your family kind of become inside jokes? If we're ever in any context where a child uh, maybe starts screaming, we look at each other, and invariably one of us will say, where's that notebook? We laugh. Where is that notebook? You, you've seen this play out in life, right? You're at the, uh, the grocery store, and mom and dad are pushing Junior down the aisle, uh, you know, in the, in the buggy while they're getting their, their groceries. And uh, they come to a point where uh, they're buying soup, but, you know, little Precious looks over and sees the fruity pebbles but can't quite reach them, and they start getting upset. They don't like that. Somebody else walks along, and they see that child, and what do they think to themselves? Hmm, that kid's got an attitude. Maybe you're at the local swimming pool. You go over the child section. Kids are playing. They're splashing each other. But then one child takes another kid's rubber ducky, and there's a fight. Somebody gets bit, and what do we do? We look over, and we think, ah, kid's got an attitude. Maybe you go to work. Another coworker Gets credit for something you're doing or gets, uh, you know, uh, gets a few more accolades or gets a promotion. You're kind, of, mm, you're kind of upset about it. You're going around. Someone looks at you and says, mm, boy, Frank's got an attitude today. He's got something going on. That word attitude is what we're going to be talking about today. And people use it usually not in a good way. Have you ever thought about that? When we think that somebody has an attitude, it's usually a what? A bad attitude, right? It's not, it's not good. But today, Paul's going to tell us about an attitude that we need to have, the attitude of Jesus. Okay, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start right at the end of verse 5, kind of half of verse 5, and then we're going to go through verse 11. Here's what it says. Ah, look, it's right there on the screen. Thanks, Gideon. It says this, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existed, existing in the form of God, He didn't consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he'd come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pray with me. God, we're grateful that we get to open your word freely in this country, and I pray today as we look at the attitude of Jesus, you'll help us to have understanding, you'll help us to have application in our own life about what you want for each of us, and so help us to speak the truth and to hear it both. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So what's this attitude that we're to have, this attitude of Jesus? Paul says we need to adopt it. Well, the first thing we see is that it's the attitude of a servant. Jesus is God. He creates man. He creates the world and all that's in it, Colossians tells us. And he took the attitude of a servant, even in the Gospels, Mark records for us, I believe, where Jesus says that He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Sure, you know people who you would consider servant-hearted. We use that term pretty regular in our in our world. Now, those are people that we uh, that go about. They have a kind attitude. They serve others. They help. I don't see as many leaders that act that way. Unfortunately, I don't think. Sometimes they get into positions and, and something happens that changes their attitude. But Jesus, it says, emptied himself and literally assumed the form of a servant. I think that sometimes when we read our Bibles and we, we see various words like emptied, you know, this is kind of a famous word in the, uh, in the Greek New Testament, right? The kenosis, this idea of emptying. And when I think about that, I honestly think it's misleading. Because did God pour out something? Does he... Did he empty himself of something? What what did he empty himself of? Did he empty himself of his deity? No. Did he give up all his divine attributes? No, no. Did he lay aside his dependence on God? No, he didn't do that either. I think that some of the more interpretive versions use the term lay aside. Maybe he didn't empty. Empty means he laid something aside. He laid aside what? We're going to talk about that. But we need to linger here just a minute because this is really the essence of who Jesus was. He took on the form of a man, so he's now fully man, and yet he remains fully God. That is one of the hardest concepts that we have to deal with in the Christian faith. How God could be fully a man and yet remain fully God. When he assumed human flesh, he still is fully God. What he did give up was the free exercise, I would say, of his divine prerogatives, right? He was equal with God. He existed with God. He had everything. He had the absolute height of power, uh, knowledge, wisdom, the ability to do anything. But he surrendered those advantages. He chose to empty himself himself and the constant use of that deity, the constant use of those divine attributes. I think that he could have come just as a a king, kind of rode in a a, a big chariot, a big white horse. The Jewish people would have loved it. You think about that. They were in – they'd been in exile. They'd come out of that. Now you have these kind of 400 silent years between the Old Testament and when Jesus shows up. Oh, they wanted someone to come in and rule. They would have been just overjoyed. But that's not how he came. kind of surprised them. And some of the religious elite, it's one of the reasons they didn't uh, ascribe to everything he was doing or even want to believe because they envisioned something different. It's not what he was. He came as a, what it says, a servant, or some versions will say a slave, at least a servant, as certain rights you know they're maybe getting a wage for what they do or they have certain things that they can do but a slave has no rights at all treated just like a piece of property to be used and thrown away and he came in the lowest form that he could be for Jesus there was no lower position that he could take nobody has ever started so high and gone so low kind of counterintuitive to how we're taught in the American culture to live our lives, right? We're taught to not go down, but to climb up, to climb up the corporate ladder, whatever it's leading to, to try to get more, whether it's more things, whether it's more fame, whether it's more money, whatever it might be that's more. Our world values that. The false narrative in this world is that the true way to get success is by climbing higher, Everything in our culture screams the wrong message of success. Jesus didn't climb up the ladder. He climbed down the ladder. Just so counterculture. All the world's great religions, except Christianity, teach that we have to do something in order to please our God, our gods. They all teach that. The world works this way. If you do good things, good things happen to you. If you do bad things, well, bad things are going to happen to you. Buddhism or Hinduism, that's called karma. And karma is bad. Some of you thought I was going to say something else. No, karma's bad. That's what I'm going to say. Karma is bad. It's not good for us. If you order your life properly, if you have good precepts, if you choose the right thing, boy, you're going to do well. Finding God and all these other religions is largely up to you. I think that kind of appeals to some people, it seems logical. Yes, I do good things to achieve success, and so I I do good things, and I please the Almighty God, whatever He might look like. It gives us a measure of what? Well, a measure of control, and we like to control things. We like to control our days. We like to control what we eat. If you're at my house, you like to control the remote control of the TV. All these things we like to control, right? I mean, that's a natural part of life. But Jesus says we don't have to do that. Now, going back to the book of Genesis, you remember Adam and Eve were told there was something they couldn't do. They couldn't eat of this one tree, but they did that. And God said, if you eat of this tree, you are going to die. But yet God couldn't go back on his word, but yet he didn't want to kill off his creation. And so he had this kind of divine dilemma where he had to overcome this penalty that there was going to be. Humans couldn't save themselves. So Jesus, what? He comes in the form of man can only reverse this penalty of sin by having a sinless man, who's also God, provide that sacrifice for us. And lucky for us, Jesus not only had the attitude of a servant, he had the attitude of sacrifice. He was willing to undergo death on a cross. A cross is a word that uh, you couldn't even say in polite Roman society. You didn't talk about it when you were with your friends. You certainly didn't talk about it in a a polite gathering, a dinner party, anything like that. They didn't like that word. That word was bad. But verse 8 tells us he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Sometimes I think that the humbling is even more profound than the emptying. So if it's not bad enough that he emptied himself or took on these limitations, then look what he lets man do to him, right? Uh, Gives up his very life, and not just in any way. He stretches out his arms, right, on a cross. Even more profound than the emptying. The heart of the universe is this one principle, that self-sacrifice is the highest act. Even Jesus said it in John 15. He said, no one has a greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. I read a book many years ago now uh, called The Ragamuffin Gospel. Some of you may have heard of this book by a former Franciscan priest, Brennan Manning, and he talks in that book about how Jesus' gospel was one of grace, and efforts to earn salvation are impossibly misguided, just what we've been talking about. He said the true meaning of God's grace has been lost in society amidst a constant search to merely please God, as though the Almighty is like a small minded bookkeeper keeping a tally of our sins. It's not what God's about. Brennan uh, Manning knew something about sacrifice. As a young boy, he had a friend growing up in in Brooklyn, New York, this friend named Ray, and they would uh, hang out together. They would go to school together. They would eat lunch together, play together. They bought their first car together. They'd go on double dates together. They enlisted in the Marines together, went to Korea together, were serving together. And one night when they were in a, a foxhole in Korea, Ray was eating a chocolate bar, and Brennan was kind of reminiscing about the days in Brooklyn when, lo and behold, a hand grenade came flying into that foxhole. And without even thinking, Ray looked over and smiled and dropped that chocolate bar and jumped on that grenade, saving Brennan's life. So when he got out of the Marines and he later decided to be a priest, a Franciscan priest, one of the things that they did uh, that they told you to do was to take on the name of a saint. That's kind of what you did in that in that uh, order. And he didn't know of anybody that was more of a saint than his friend Ray Brennan. That's how Brennan Manning got his name from his friend Ray Brennan, who literally gave his life. A number of years later, he was visiting Ray's mom in Brooklyn, and he said to her, do you think that Ray... Really love me? Well, his mom got up and got right in his face and said, of course he loved you. What more could he do? He gave his life for you. She probably said a little more forcefully than that. Can you imagine? And sometimes we need to hear that message from Jesus. Does Jesus love me? What more could he do? He gave his life for you. Some people need to hear that, that we're loved by Jesus. And then we have this last section in the text about a reward. I call it the attitude of humility. Here's why. It says, For this reason God highly exalted him. He gave him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sounds like he's being exalted. This is a big, big party. Good, good things going on. But do you see Jesus showing up into heaven and just kind of mm, high five everybody fist pump, rah rah, everything is good. I just, I just don't see it that way. I can't picture it. it doesn't seem uh, congruent with the life that Jesus led of a humble servant person, right? So I call this the attitude of humility. Jesus gets rewarded. He gets exalted, and one day every knee people. Uh, We'll bow to him. I look forward to that day. It's going to be an amazing day for some. For some it won't be. But Paul says that we're to have the attitude, adopt this attitude of Christ Jesus. That's not even possible. That's not possible for sinful, for selfish people. Well, if you don't have... Jesus in your life, it really isn't possible, obviously. Why would you even want to? You can know Jesus. It's so simple to recognize that God made a way for us to be reconciled to him. We talked a lot more about that last week, this reconciliation, that he is our redeemer. You can find out about that even after the service. But in what's another way that we can think about it? You know, in uh, the early 50s, there's an author... uh, C.S. Lewis. Some of you have heard of C.S. Lewis. He wrote a pretty famous uh, series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you have read them. Some of you have seen the movies. You're not readers. You like the movies. That's cool. We've seen the movies. And uh, a couple of years after he wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, he wrote another book. It's called Mere Christianity. I've got to be honest with you. I've tried reading that book. That book is deep. That's not one you can just breeze through. It's not like reading The Chronicles of Narnia. It's like you're reading something that's a textbook. Because he can take people from having no belief in God at all and then helping translate that nothingness into a faith, right? And so in that book, Mere Christianity, if you can kind of wade through the first part where he's making his case for an ultimate being. You get to this part where he talks about how it is that we can live like Jesus. And he says in there, he says, you know, what we can do is we can think just as a child um, might play dress up in a sense. Maybe they want to be a fireman, so they dress up and they act like they think a fireman would act. Or they want to be a shopkeeper, have their own store, and so they'll dress up like that. Or they'll want to be a soldier. He uses that as one of his examples. you know. And he says, you know, as people start thinking about the way these other people act, they can kind of take on the attributes and feel a little bit about what that might feel like. I don't know if that influenced what happened in uh, the 90s or not, but there was a youth group leader in Holland, Michigan. I don't know if any of y'all have ever been to Holland. It's lovely. Has a tulip festival every May. Used to live in Michigan, and we'd go to Holland once in a while. That's a side story. Anyway, this girl in the early 90s, Janie Tinkleberg, was running a youth group in a small church in Holland, Michigan, and she wanted to give her students a way to kind of remember how to adopt the attitude of Jesus well, she came up with a pretty good way. In fact, that way that she came up with sparked a real grassroots movement that went all over the country and even around the world. Some of you have probably heard of it. She gave them a simple bracelet, kind of like this bracelet right here that I'm wearing today. My friend Atticus had one of these bracelets on today. I saw it. Yeah, it has some letters on it. It says WWJD. You guys heard of that? What's it stand for? What would Jesus do? Yeah. I thought, how genius. You can see why this took off, right? And sometimes I think it's good to have little reminders like that on our our wrist, you know, to help us to remember what. Well, to remember that we're not supposed to be acting on just what we think. If we're going to have the humble attitude of Jesus and adopt his way, sometimes we need to think about what he would do. So I'm going to challenge you in something. Figure out what his way looks like. You've heard a little bit. If you're not sure, hey, read the Gospel of John. It talks all about Jesus' life. Maybe you need to get one of these bracelets. get like a dozen of these for six bucks on Amazon. I just bought them, I know. Put one on. I'm going to try to wear this. I think about three weeks. They say if you do something for three weeks, it becomes a habit. Some of us need to have that habit ingrained more in our lives, Right? We need to think about how we can be servant-hearted, how we can be self-sacrificing. That's the attitude that Paul is telling us to remember to have. The attitude of Jesus. I really don't want your picture to show up in my daughter's notebook of having an attitude. I want you to have the attitude that doesn't get into the notebook, right? That attitude of... Serving others. It all goes back to unity, right? We talked about that. That's the whole context of this piece. It's being together and unified. So that's my prayer for you today. That's my prayer for me. That's why I'm going to be wearing this bracelet, thinking about more about what that looks like and trying to live it out.